Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 338. More chutzpah, less reverence. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Lex Rofberg, and once again, I'm not Dan Levinson, who usually does these introductions, and I say that for a couple reasons. One, so that you know that I have successfully orchestrated my coup of the introduction. No, that that's not that's not it. Um, but I am pinch hitting for Dan for a couple weeks as he recovers from COVID. Thanks so much to those of you who have sent well wishes our way to Dan. Um, he's feeling a bunch better, but still I'm helping out with this intro this week. He'll be back before too long for the intros. And he is here, of course, for the body for the main part of this conversation. One quick exciting announcement before we get into the introduction of our guest is that we are launching our next set of Onyeshiva mini-courses, three-week courses that you can take in our Onyeshiva, which is our digital platform for Jewish learning and unlearning. And uh, we're launching those for you to sign up as we speak. If you go to our website, judaismabound.com slash Onyeshiva, and you don't see them there yet, you will, in the next couple days, you will be able to sign up for some really amazing classes that will be taking place in the month of Elul, which is the month right before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So stay tuned, head to our website, be ready for some emails about those upcoming classes. They're going to be really awesome. We are going to get into a great episode today. We have our guest, Sean Harris, and I'll say a little bit about her in a second. But um, I wanted to mention how we met Sean Harris. Um, she was an attendee at a Judaism Unbound program, actually at a number of them, but at one particular program this past Purim, Sean spoke up, had some cool things to say. I ended up hanging out with her afterwards and just talking about all sorts of good stuff. And we've connected a few times since then, talking about the present and future of Judaism. And now she's a podcast guest. I mentioned that because that's something we try to have be our rhythm at Judaism Unbound. We want our attendees at various events, our participants, to always know that like we see you as creators of the present and future of Judaism. And so this is something that's happened a number of times that we take pride in where people shift from the status of attendee or participant at our events to somebody who is a podcast guest or a facilitator at one of our events. So basically that could be you. But to say a little bit more about our guest for today, Sean Harris is an author, playwright, and educator from Richmond, Virginia. And she is a lifelong fan of fantasy, sci-fi, horror, and role-playing games who channels those interests into creative projects and interactive learning activities such as the Queer Women in Torah workshop that she created. Sean's essays have been featured in a number of Jewish publications, and her debut poetry collection, The Red Door, is a dark fairy tale told in story poems. We'll talk more about what that means. And it is currently available for pre-order at Ben Yehuda Press. You can find Sean on Twitter via the handle Project Simsum. That's Project T Z I M T Z U M. And you can also check out her work at ProjectSimsum.com. She enjoys both on Twitter and her website sharing her thoughts about Judaism, the creative writing process, role playing games, and her latest culinary experiments. So without further ado, Sean Harris, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thanks. It's great to be here. 
So a lot of times we do these episodes and, you know, usually it's me that gets in this mindset again about how Judaism is like a form of art and how we should be thinking about the raw materials of art. And that's what Judaism is as opposed to the finished product itself and all these various theories. And anyway, a while goes by and then, you know, it comes up again. But actually, we were wanted to talk to you about your recent book. But as we were kind of planning for that conversation, I came across the blog post that you did after you listened to that most recent episode. And I thought, you know, this is an opportunity to actually continue this conversation a little bit with an artist. So that's all a big wind up in saying, I would love to talk about that with you. I'd love to uh, hear a little bit from you, kind of what what is your, maybe you have better language than we have to talk about this thing that we're trying to grapple with, where art is this central thing in the process that we're trying to uh, encourage for Judaism, rather than, like Lexa said, a peripheral thing. Toppings a, on the Sunday, as opposed to the Sunday. The toppings on the Sunday, yeah. it's the Sunday itself. So w- can you give us a little bit of, of your thoughts coming from an artist? on that i guess i i say i have an artistic temperament which is not the same as i guess being like a person who does a thing it's, it's like it's, it's part of my makeup so it's kind of interesting because it's not like i approach it as oh well art is this and judaism is this and so i can just merge the two together it's not like that i my approach to things is usually to try to figure out how i can shape it how i can create with it self is raw material it's like, because raw material of art are things like feelings, memories, dreams, images, and Judaism is chock full of all that. <laughs> as far as what would help, I know as an artist, it's, it's kind of when you when I say like artistic freedom, rah rah rah. It's um, it's like sometimes the best thing people can do is get out of the way. It's just you know, <laughs> it's not so much specific actions you do necessarily, but it can be things you stop doing, like you know, um. And I know that some people who have ideas, who want to be creative with things, just don't, they feel like they need permission to exercise that creativity. It's like, well, can I, am I allowed to do this? Can I go there? Is this, is this okay? And it's, and of course, art pushes boundaries in all sorts of ways. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you put up a boundary, some artist is bound to cross it. You know, I don't know if there's a particular solution to that, I guess, that tension between like the borders of what's appropriate or acceptable or uh, permitted but you know just remove the obstacles let people surprise you when it comes to art like and we're seeing this happening like in the news right now with all these um well let's just call them book bannings because that's what they are um all these books they're trying to take off the shelves because they're too queer or they're too you know or they talk about racism too honestly and or you know or this that and the third and it's like don't try to put rules or boundaries on everything it's just let it be what it is and then respond to it which is what we do in judaism anyway it's like okay the text is the text we respond to it the ritual is the ritual and we respond to it the way i experience it as an artist is that there's not like these two separate circles you know one called judaism one called art and sometimes i can mash them together and it's the same whether it's like a play or novel or poem or Judaism itself. So when I look at the the raw material of Judaism, like it's it's always been raw material to me. Yeah, so I've been thinking about something in the realm of Jewish art, which is actually like the phrase Jewish art. I think it kind of suggests the framework you're 
rebelling against a little bit when you say that like you don't see them as separate you don't see judaism over here and art over here let's take like a sunday schools class or curriculum right like i they often will set up the different sections of the curriculum and they'll say like prayer israel and then they'll say like jewish art Mm -hmm. they don't say jewish prayer and they don't say jewish israel because the presumption is like that's kind of that kind of goes without saying, right? Like the 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 prayer is Jewish, like Israel is Jewish. Right. Uh, you have to say Jewish art because there's this sense that art is inherently not Jewish until it is. Right. Um, right. And you could say the same about prayer. Like you could say that there's lots of prayers in the world that are not Jewish, but like we don't t- go around in Jewish spaces talking about like ah our Jewish prayers. We we tend to say just like prayers or services or tefillah if you're saying the Hebrew word. So that's just something I'm noticing that. I haven't been that conscious of before, but I think points to the issue you're describing. Um, the other piece I wanted to bring up, though, is around that idea of permission that comes up in the essay you wrote. Uh, by the way, this essay is awesome. This blog post, essay, whatever we want to call it, it's great. It's in the show notes on our website for those of you listening. Um, you mentioned this cool comparison where you talk about King Arthur, this way that we might relate to King Arthur, which is to say, you know, a set of stories that I think most people know are stories and not necessarily historical fact. And so people understand that you can play around, that you that there might be contemporary art that plays with King Arthur in various ways. And you talk about a skittishness with doing that with Torah, with you know, Jewish text, Jewish tradition, etc. Yes. And I'd love to hear more from you about that. You're hinting at or explicitly saying something that I think people really need to hear. Um, about how we should feel permission to do exactly what we do with King Arthur or other, you know, legends in the world. We should do that with Jewish stuff, too. Right. Yes. I mean, I guess I, part of that skittishness may be a sort of, how do I put this? Over-reverence <laughs> for Jewishness. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though, though Jews are stereotyped for our sense of humor, it, it's kind of interesting that the willingness to remix things only goes so far. To really take, for instance, Torah in this radically different direction. There's still, I mean, there's still people arguing about whether or not um, Ruth and Naomi were romantically involved. And it's like, have you heard of Femme Flesh? Um, and it, Femme Flesh, for those who don't know, who are not involved in fandom, who have lives and whatnot. Um, <laughs> Femme Slash is taking a piece of media that has two female characters and imagining them or portraying them as romantically involved. That kind of remixing, like, you know, especially in like fandom spaces, which, is, which I've been in for a long time too. It's just normal. And for some reason, I, I don't know, I, I guess there's this kind of, oh no, we can't touch that or we can't go there with it as if, you know, Judaism is going to fall apart if you do that. And I know for me, like, of course, I am no rabbi by any stretch of the imagination. So my understanding of it is like, okay, these are stories. These are our, first of all, they're our stories. (laughs) And that's the thing. It's like, they're our stories. It's our tradition. We can do with it what we want. But yeah, these like radical reimaginings of these stories or like, or just playing with them, not even like trying to revolutionize Judaism or anything like that, just playing with them seems uh, taboo. <laughs> As for why that is, I don't know, it, because it, it even comes from, I can't say it's, 
a religious reverence because it's also secular Jews who do this. Speaking as a person of, uh, as a member of several minority groups, like it might be like a minority group thing where it's like, you know, you're kind of a little bit more protective of, I don't want to say like traditions per se, but, but the folk ways. But it does perplex me because it's our stuff. It's not like we're taking it from someone else or keeping someone else from being able to engage with it the way they normally do. It's, it's not, you know, I don't know. It's just maybe it has something to do with our tradition not being shaped by artists, you know, because you have scholars and doctors and lawyers and whatnot. But, and I mean like the actual rabbis and sages, I'm not talking about the stereotypical Jewish occupations. It's a dearth of people whose livelihoods are based in like creativity. As you were talking, I was thinking about whether when you were talking about, like you said, kind of who made the tradition that it was doctors and lawyers and those kind of people. But at some point there were artists involved, right? I mean, like I've been thinking about how the story of King David really is this, like the Jewish story of King Arthur in right. almost the same way. There was probably some ancient someone, there was some kind of ancient Arthur who was a warlord of some kind. There was some ancient David who was a warlord of some kind. But hundreds and hundreds of years later, somebody wrote this incredible novelistic version of those old stories. And, you know, that person was an amazing artist in the case of in the case of uh, King Arthur, we I think know who it was. In the case of King David, we don't necessarily know exactly who that amazing artist was. But then I was thinking about like Star Trek as something that was originally created by really creative people, right? By writers. And then though, I think a lot of engineers and space people, you know, got into it. And I was sort of thinking as you were talking. I'm wondering whether, for example, in the Star Trek fandom, there was a certain resistance to change at a certain point when the kind of engineers took over the fandom from the original creators who were artists, and whether maybe there was like, maybe there's been a back and forth because Star Trek has often uh, been rebooted over and over again. And so new artists get involved each time. And I'm just wondering whether we can look to something like Star Trek or maybe there are other fandoms that are even better analogies and say, actually, we can kind of see these conservative impulses to not mess with the source material and these, you know, fan fiction, just let anybody do whatever they want with the fan. And if we can see that happening in real time in all these other fandoms, then maybe we can sort of understand in a better way, what has happened over the course of Jewish history that has kind of left us in the period of the fandom when there's a lot of pressure to not do the fan fiction. Okay, you bring up Star Trek, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's playing out right now in the J.R.R. Tolkien fandom. Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Silmarillion, my personal favorite. Silmarillion's having a moment. Buy stock in Silmarillion, everyone. I'm hearing it from every direction. This yeah. is fascinating. Uh, to if me. you like the Torah, if you read the Silmarillion like you read the Torah, you'll probably like it. But if you read it like a novel, you'll probably hate it. But like Tolkien fandom, with this new adaptation coming up on Amazon, Rings of Power, and a lot of diehard Tolkien purists are very upset that they cast black people in the show. And of course they come up with all these kind of these really convoluted rationales for it. But like, 
at the ground level, aside from the racism, it's don't touch the Lord. Don't change anything. Don't, um, no, you have to do it exactly the way he read it, wrote it exactly the way Tolkien intended it. And it's as if someone is going to burn all the copies of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, take away all of everything that's available that Tolkien ever wrote. Come on. It, it, it's like, if you think, oh my God, if you thought fundamentalist Christians were bad, it's like Tolkien purists are just, it's of a similar kind, like that, uh, that kind of rigidity. Strangely enough, the sci-fi fantasy, sometimes horror fandom get fandoms, I should say. There's a huge influx of like STEM field people, scientists, engineers, and whatnot, like like you said, Dan. Um, and I'm not saying that STEM field people are not creative. I'm not saying that. I am saying that Me neither. Don't send me emails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please don't yeah, please don't send me angry emails. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that people who build their kind of like their identity around this must be logical. This must make sense. It has to be consistent. You know, that that discomfort with ambiguity, with a reality that is messy and complex. It's not that artists are necessarily more creative. I mean, come on, we know some hacks. It's that art encourages you to think about things in a more expansive and fluid way versus something where, you know, when you're, let's say, a computer engineer, code itself is binary. And it's not that you can't get creative with it because, come on, look at what we can do with these machines. It's that when you kind of look at something that's not built in that way, it, it really comes in and the people get really, really aggressively hostile about it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm more receptive to emails. I, I'm I'm happy to receive the emails that y'all are concerned about. Where we're I'm, look, I'm not saying that scientific that, that people who are trained in scientific forms of thinking or social sciences are like less creative than folks in the humanities. I do think that we live in a society that right now, in all sorts of ways, treats forms of thinking that are around creativity. And we live in a society that sees that as impractical, quote unquote, right. as not, you know, real life experience. We we have a culture of memes about how philosophy degrees are like the worst thing you could do in college because they're not a direct path to whatever career that many STEM field. Like, I'm perfectly happy <laughs> to say directly that we have a problem where we are insufficiently respectful of ways in which the humanities can push us. And the other thing that I want to talk about, I want to think about Midrash, the the concept that we've talked about. And we, we've we now talked about it as fan fiction. That's how we translate it on this show. And it's become very normal in many different spaces I'm a part of to, to use Midrash as a Hebrew form of fan fiction or to use fan fiction as an English translation of Midrash. Um, yeah, that's the way the I point where I'm, I, I used to be in spaces where I'd say, Midrash, which is fan fiction, people would laugh at that. They'd be like, oh, that's that's true. That's what, but now they don't even laugh anymore because they're like used to that idea. So that's a good thing. But not in all Jewish spaces, but in a lot of them. And I agree with you that across traditionalist spaces and even spaces of folks that might be, you know, less traditionalist. And you can be talking about a Torah story of one sort or another. And it's not that we have a Jewish culture that is like anti-fan fiction. It's that we've had fan fiction for so long that some of the, that we have the set of fan fictions that are like quote unquote canonical or correct. And if you 
are making your own, you're saying like you're as big a deal as Rashi or one of these, you know, medieval guys who came up with lots of fan fiction. You're like being arrogant by saying that you can fill in the gaps as well as these older guys. And they, they are guys by and large. Like that impulse is, it doesn't check out to me. Like we have a set of stories to tell as our generation in the t- flow of history. And, you know, every generation does. The generation of those folks in the 1100s, 1200s, 1300, like the people that wrote a lot of these commentaries, they, I'm glad they did. But I actually find that the official fan fictions discourage people from their own. And right. so I wanted to turn to you on that. But also, I'm curious how this connects to your upcoming work on The Red Door, which I would frame as, I would call it Midrash. And so, yeah, I'm kind of curious your general orientation to the idea of Midrash and whether we're limiting ourselves or doing a good job in Jewish life, and then how it relates to your work. Years ago, I was like in fandom and I was talking about being Jewish in fandom. And like, well, of course, fanfic makes sense to me. I'm Jewish. Fanfic is basically Midrash. And the non-Jewish people were like, huh? But um, that element was just like, well, yeah, duh. <laughs> For me, that that it's like a natural parallel. It's like it's not like swimming upstream here. Actually, to get back to what Dan was saying, there are like two branches of fandom. There's the curative fandom, which is about collecting all the like knowing all the lore, collecting all the merch, you know, reading everything when it comes out, and knowing all the this, that, and the third. You're like you're collecting different elements of the the material. Yeah, it sounds like that kind of fandom is somebody who almost is trying to turn themselves into an encyclopedia of this source material. Right. And then there's the other branch, which is transformative fandom. And that's where you get the fanfic, the fan art, the alternative universe concepts, (laughs) the crossovers and whatnot, where you take the, the source material and you put your own spin on it. And it's not that these are conflicting because in order to do the transformative work, you have to engage with the source material. And then, you know, if I really want to get like kind of gender analysis about this, like I read somewhere that um, someone noticed that there's a real gender disparity as far as where people participate. The curative angle is often dominated by men masculine people and the transformative fandom is where a lot of women and girls hang out um i don't i don't have any statistics for this but it doesn't surprise me that in that regard you might there might be some pushback there because you know because well yeah because people hate everything that women like it's just like the romance genre you know it's like ugh, that frivolous nonsense but those same streams exist within Judaism, where there's the curatorial element, where it's all about knowing the biblical Hebrew, being able, like knowing the Aramaic so you can read the uh, Talmud, like reading all the commentaries and being familiar with them and being able to quote them at the drop of a hat. And then there's the transformative side of Judaism, which we don't see so much, even though that element is probably why Judaism survived you know, like the major upheavals that it did. So if it weren't for, say, the transformative fandom of Judaism with the sages after the destruction of the temple, what would have happened to us? If they did say, okay, 
well, we can't have sacrifices in the temple anymore. Now what? This creative boundary pushing element is not alien to Judaism itself. So as far as segueing into the red door, it's something similar. I've taken the raw material I've been exposed to and creating something with it, you know, and putting my own spin on some of those stuff. Yeah. So there's so much to the red door. I mean, I'd, I'd love to have you talk about it a little bit in your own words, but I will say that there is one element in it that, it, you know, I had this experience reading it and feeling like, wow, I feel like I'm sort of reading a sacred text. But I, I'm saying that when I was reading it, right, there were ways in which I felt like the experience, and I'm sure this was to a large extent intentional, of reading the Song of Songs, mm-hmm. uh, right, which is a story, uh, a book about love between a man and a woman. And here in this book, it's not between a man and a woman. It's a queer love story. So then I don't know whether to say it's a midrash on the Song of Songs, or it is an alternative to the Song of Songs, or it is a supplement, or it's just another book. But when you're you're reading it, you kind of have this sense that you're both reading something that can be read as a uh, on the surface, right? What we say in in interpretive Hebrew language, pshat, the surface level, which you say, oh, this is a really cool story about, you know, loss and connection and danger and all of these things, right? Or you, you feel like, whoa, you know, I could easily see how some community of Jews could look at this and say, you know, that, that this is going to be uh, symbolic of the relationship between us and God or, you know, whatever forces we want to talk about. And so I, I'm curious about, in a way, I feel like there's a, there's a, a way in which we could have this conversation with you having written this book and say, well, what might it have been like to have interviewed the author of Song of Songs on a podcast? You know, right. what, what what would be going through <laughs> your mind as you're creating this text? Yeah, that would be interesting. They might just say, well, I wanted to write a love poem for my significant other. Exactly. And, uh, so they won't break <laughs> up with me. I don't know. Like when Stevie Nicks was being interviewed and they asked her a question about this song she wrote called Blue Lamp. And, and I love that song. And they asked her about it. What does the blue lamp symbolize? And she's like, well, uh, that's literally what was going on. <laughs> I was <laughs> cleaning out my mom's house. Like I was in, like in my mother's house and there was this blue, like this really pretty decorative blue lamp. <laughs> and, and so she put that in her music. Now, it, it's not quite that stark, <laughs> but I will say that, yes, those things you notice were deliberate. It's like there are things in it that I'm crossing my fingers hoping that someone picks up on. Um, like, like everything from like the structure to the actual number of poems in it. So yes to all that. Yes. And I don't, I mean, I don't know if it's midrash or me like transforming it or whatever. It's like, I don't know. I'm not sure. The Red Door was not originally conceived to be a collection of poems. It was originally, I originally was going to write a novel about, a woman in Alaska and her werewolf girlfriend, but life <laughs> happened. And as I explored, I was really, really challenged by the novels and short stories have, give you a lot of freedom, but there's also limitations. So I said, okay, let me try a series of vignettes. A smarter person than me at the time would have told me right away that, well, if you're really focusing on vibes and images and whatnot, you probably should make it poems. 
But self-conscious me at that time was like, no, 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 I can't do poems. I experienced poetry as an elite thing that's inaccessible to me. And I consider myself, I hate this final horn like this, and I'm a person who studied literature. So I resisted poetry for a long time. And it just wasn't, something about it just, I'd hit a wall and it just became too restrictive. And I said, what am I, I mean, I can write whatever I want, so why am I feeling restrictive? And the more I progressed to it, I was like, I I finally faced the music and said, okay, there have to be poems. And I was like, well, what kind of poetry? I could probably sit down and study meter and rhyme and whatnot, but like, okay, just let it be free verse. Let it be what it, what it wants to be. And so I said, okay, I'm going to focus on these feelings and these images and this, this vibe that wouldn't leave me alone. And I felt like I was actually expressing something that I felt unable to express any other way. I originally called those parashot. Parashot being the, the sections, the, the portions of the Torah. Yeah. And that was going to be my big honking neon sign that this is not a straightforward beginning to end kind of narrative. But I decided against it because that was just me being clever. But I still retained the, like, I knew I wanted 54 poems. So I want people to like sit with it and discuss it with a friend, argue about it, come up with their own interpretations of what's going on or or the meaning of it. I want them to engage in that way. And I want them to uncover not just the uh, Peshat, which is a plain meaning, but all the other, the other three layers of Pardes, which is an acronym that means orchard. That is a, a description of Jewish textual interpretation different layers of Jewish textual interpretation from the plain meaning to the deep esoteric meaning. So, yeah. I hadn't noticed. I'm, I'm ashamed. I, I try to be noticing as many numerical connections as possible in everything I read and engage with. And I did not catch the 54 tie-in of the Parshiyot. So that I'm, I'll, I'll have to do a reread. But I, I think part of that is I was looking at so many other things. I mean, I, there's, Part of what Dan is bringing up around Song of Songs, I mean, I think there's absolutely a way in which this just resembles Song of Songs in terms of how, in terms of the the love story of it. There's also ways in which it departs from that. But I, and also there's like explicit connections to the text of Song of Songs. I won't spoil too much there, but like, it's clear that you meant some of that, um, not just our, you know, creative take. But I, I also think that there's something that resembles Song of Songs and that there were plenty of moments where I didn't quite know what was happening. <laughs> like, and, and I'm saying that not as an insult, not to disparage, but quite the opposite. I spent a reasonable portion of my time reading trying to figure it out. And it, it added to the pleasure of the experience. It was ambiguous. I couldn't always tell exactly who was being referred to. Um, you don't use capitalization, I think, almost at all, or at least um, if you do, it's very rare. And that actually makes the reading experience interesting because I'm used to having capitalization sort of help me get a visual cue of where a new thought starts. And um, with poetry, thoughts can straddle lines. They can uh, One line can be independent, but it can also connect to the next one. You play with that a little bit. Sometimes there's refrains. I mean, it's it's really like a mindfuck in a, in a good way. And that's similar to Song of Songs for me. I mean, I, I've actually made it my personal practice sometimes with books of the Bible 
Because, you know, people ask me stuff about the Bible. They assume, oh, I'm a rabbi. I must understand these books backwards and forwards. Whenever I talk about Song of Songs, I start by saying, I'm not quite sure what is happening. (laughs) I've read it a lot of times. I've looked at it in Hebrew and I'm an English speaker and I've read lots of different translations. The translations are all over the place. You can't even, the different translations think that various different people are speaking at some points. It's it's not a clear-cut text. And I think part of the magic of it is that it's not a clear-cut text because once again, if you're one of those transformative fan fiction folks, it invites you as a reader to be constantly coming up with your own interpretation. Um, the word in Hebrew, parasha, th- that word, it's usually translated Torah portion. It's the same root as interpretation, perush. The Pharisees, the Prussians—that's the people who interpret. And I don't know. There's something magical about reading something and not knowing what's going on. And I'm saying magical on purpose, in the sense of like mystical and otherworldly. I was wondering how much of that was on purpose. If you were like trying to create an ambiguity that readers can then play with, or if you just sort of spoke what came to you and what came out was something that had those strengths. Embracing the ambiguity was part of my process. Contrary to what some people may think, a lot of this is just toil. You, you literally just have to sit there and do it. So it's like it's all stream of consciousness. Whatever. No, it is emphatically not. Um, <laughs> Ulysses, this book ain't. And so, of course, there were choices being made the whole time. One of the reasons why I transitioned to poetry was because I could embrace the ambiguity in, the, in a way I couldn't. I didn't feel I could with prose. Even the structure of the sentences with capital letters and punctuation marks, that encouraged a certain linearity that didn't feel appropriate. So it's not like I added ambiguity that wasn't there at first. I didn't add linearity or rationality that wasn't there at first. I exercised a certain kind of discipline (laughs) to not explain things and to not connect those dots because, you know, it's really powerful because I want them to understand. But at the same time, it's like, well, part of this thing is that you don't understand. When you read a book like this, who in your mind is it for? The people I've enjoyed hearing most, I've most enjoyed hearing from were thoughtful, engaged people who are open to the mystery, who, who don't need everything spelled out for them. And like, want works that encourage them to actively engage their imagination. I don't think I will ever be the kind of person who can spell everything out in plain terms with a logical progression of ideas. Or rather, I can do that, but it's counter to the way I normally function, which is why I didn't like pursue higher education in the sense of a master's or a doc or a PhD. It's like the idea of writing a thesis kind of just makes me go, ugh. <laughs> Because I like if I have something to say, I try to say it as briefly as possible. And and especially when I write, I try to write it as briefly as possible. So um, it's like when I think about who it's for, it's it's not necessarily a specific demographic or anything like that. It's just I think I said on Twitter, if you like folklore, demons, mysticism, queer love stories and horror, this is the thing for you. Well, it it also makes me think about that blog post about that responded to our episode that we started the conversation today with um, in that, you know, you really wrote there, you know, you sort of offered this take that as I understood it, 
was that there's this resistance to bringing the approach of art to Judaism that you were comparing to the Victorian resistance to sex and to the cishet resistance to queer love. And and I wanted to get a little bit more into what you think that resistance comes from. Like, is that from fear? And if it's from fear, what is it a fear of? Is it a fear that somehow everybody's going to go in that direction and that would be wrong? Or is it some fear that's more about if the system that I've inherited and that I've come to occupy is not the only good system, then somehow that makes me feel like I'm on an unstable ground and I can't afford to be unstable. I'm trying to grasp at what the fear is exactly, because I think that would help all of us try to maybe bring these artistic and these new and these queer approaches and avenues without maybe maybe in a way that wouldn't necessarily trigger that same fear and that same resistance if we could understand deeply what it what's causing it in the first place yeah if i had a a short pithy answer for that i would put it in a bottle and sell it but (laughs) i think on that blog post i said there is a fear there they find something vaguely threatening (laughs) even if we're not doing anything transgressive you know, for instance, you can't really separate homophobia from prescribed gender roles. And you can't separate that from, you know, I don't want to say capitalism, that's not the right word, but, but how we value certain kinds of labor. And, and you can't separate that from white supremacy. You can't separate that from all these other systems. They're, of course, they're all connected. I mean, it's like nothing I'm doing is taking anything away from you. Why do you care? But apparently... Or, or us just existing and doing our thing is going to upend the entire social order. And, you know, frankly, if, if that is going to upend your entire social order, maybe it deserves it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> people mm-hmm. just being who they are, you know, and not hurting anybody is really that detrimental to your society. Maybe your society needs to be, you know, shaken up a whole lot. So I don't know. I don't know how their mind goes there. Yeah. I mean, I, I really love what you're saying about like maybe it deserves to be upended. I think for a lot of folks, I mean, maybe our listeners, maybe not, I don't know, but like many Jews, I think what you just said about how if people's social orders are threatened just by people being themselves, like if we're thinking about that in the axis of queerness, I think our listeners certainly and even, you know, most American Jews, everybody's going to be nodding their heads to that. I do think there are people who are less sure about that with Judaism. I do actually think there are people, even relatively politically progressive people, who when you say, you know, people should have the right to be themselves, and that means they should have the right to make the midrashes that call to them that are wacky and interesting in whatever set of ways and rewrite what Judaism is, I think a lot of people get squeamish. Even people who in the realm of like society's social order, like political social order, the whole idea of like family values or all of that. So like, these are people who recognize that that's not how we want to be structuring things is like fear about adhering to past norms, that that's actually really toxic. But somehow we've, we've created this notion that being super concerned about change in Judaism is different than being super concerned about change in general society. And 
that distinction means that somebody who is progressive in almost every element of their life, who wants the world to change in all sorts of ways, actually might choose to go to the Orthodox show that says, the Orthodox synagogue that says, ideologically, not they, they claim that Judaism should not actually change from where it is now. And sure, we might come up with our own fill in the gaps of the Jewish texts in the Torah, but like, we're not going to call the Midrash in the same way that we call the old commentators midrash so i i just wanted to to put that out there because i think that it's a little too easy for us to only think about that in the realm of like society and legal restrictions around queerness and not also think about Mm -hmm. it jewishly The, the the other direction i really wanted to go though you've spoken in a number of ways that make me want to talk about your interest in role playing games weird segue not particularly smooth here um you like role-playing games and you use a lot of language of RPGs in your Project Seamsoom website. And I think it's also embedded, I'm hearing it embedded in how you think about art and literature. You talked about, you know, these are our texts, right? The same notion of X is our text, like this is our story. A role-playing game, Dungeons and Dragons is is basically anchored on that notion that people have the right to shape a story. You don't have to just like read one that somebody else wrote. And Mm -hmm. so I'd love to hear a little bit more from you about role-playing games and how, I mean, you can connect it to Jewish stuff directly if you want, but you don't even really have to. I'm just curious why, like why that language looms so large and how you organize the work you do. Over half my life, I've been involved in a role-playing game reading role-playing games, it's always, it's been a relatively constant thing. And that is also connected to theater. It's kind of interesting in that role-playing is basically improv theater, often with dice. I like the element of actively engaging the imagination. You have like this, not, I don't want to say the rules, that's not the right way to say it. You have this material and they say, okay, well, this material that tells you how to do the thing you want to do anyway, like an engine that, that you use to, like, to take you where you want to go. And, you know, and role-playing looms large because like, I love role-playing games. I just, I, I do. Um, I think that the aspect of role-playing games that I think distinguishes it from theater is that in role-playing games, the audience and the performer are the same. And I think in Judaism, per se, I don't want to say Judaism, Specifically, but they're, they're, that element is, is also there in Judaism. So it's, it's not so odd to me that, that those two things merge. To get to the thing about like people's resistance to Judaism itself needing to change. Like, like I mentioned earlier, it's, like, it's kind of strange to me because when you look at Jewish history, there have been so many upheavals, so many um, ways that we've had to boldly cre- recreate Judaism in order to continue. It's a segue, but it isn't with role-playing games where it's like, just as in role-playing games, you have people who look at the, the guidebook or the, the rule book and says, okay, these rules are the ceiling for what's possible in my game. And there are other people who say, okay, they look at the same text and say, okay, this is the floor of what's possible in my game. This is the bare minimum of what I can actually do with this. So those same impulses, it's like I recognize them because I've seen them before. And it's kind of interesting in, in, in the case of Judaism because it's like, well, I, I've never gotten a straight answer about this. Where did rabbinical authority specifically come from? 
hey, you know, like at the end of the day, it's like it's all a social construct or whatever, but it's like, where does it really come from? Because you could say Moses talked directly to God. Um, the prophets or whatever, okay, fine. But these are just men. <laughs> They're not gods. They're not angels. They're not prophets. They're just people. And, and so, you know, and they're applying their own intelligence, their own understanding, their own experience, their own imagination to these texts. So why can't everybody else? Why can't we be bolder? Why can't we be more expansive? Well, this idea that the audience and the performer are the same in role-playing games really strikes me. And this question that you're asking, where did rabbinical authority come from? It kind of feels to me like maybe these were the first people that started to treat Judaism as a role-playing game at, at their time, right? And, and they were the audience and the performer at the same time, and something really cool happened. B'nai Lapi has talked about this too, like the idea that in the early days of rabbinic Judaism, it was a really, really small game, mm-hmm. you know, and there weren't very many people involved. And it really was probably that everybody who was involved was actually a rabbi. Like there were no regular Jews. It was just a side game for for rabbis, you know, for the hardcore. So maybe the most important message to our listeners and to us is like, don't worry about the other people out there. Just (laughs) worry about the people that are playing your game. Get into that game where the audience and the performer are the same. And that's where the energy is going to be. That's where the future is going to be, even though it may not be you know, I mean, I think about like role-playing games as I understand them. They're often like under-resourced, right? They're just like a few pieces of paper. You know, there's not a lot of like fancy electronics. And I mean, maybe there are now in, in more modern oh, versions. Oh, Kickstarter but, is know, wonderful. <laughs> but, like when I was growing up, you know, it was like a booklet. You know, Dungeons and Dragons was like basically a big box with a booklet in it. Um, and, um, you know, so it may not be the most impressive looking thing in the world, but it actually is a lot of fun for the people who find it fun to be in that kind of environment. Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of it, it's like the whole idea where it's like, well, it's not when you look at the rule book, it's like, why would anybody deal with this? This is kind of, you know, there are people that might look silly or it's like, well, really, this is what's so fun. And then you try it and it's like amazing. I don't know who I told this to, but I think at one time I was really looking at my financial situation. And and like, it's like, it's interesting that dollar for dollar, I got more replay value out of role-playing games than just about any other form of media. Because every game is different. Like, okay, you have the same rule book, but every game is different. You know, either you create a different character or you play the same character, but it's a different setting or with different house rules. So it's interesting that you bring that up where it's like, it's kind of like a role-playing game where it's just you and your, your, your gaming group. And it's like, yes, yes, exactly. Like the the game empowers you to imagine and play around and create things. So, so I guess maybe Judaism needs to be a little bit more like like Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know. Yeah, I'd sign on. Um, although I, I should admit I haven't done enough Dungeons and Dragons. I might need to join my wife's uh, weekly group. Um, in the interest of another unsmooth segue, I know that in addition to role playing games, you're really captivated by horror as a genre and that's also something that influences the red door won't say too many spoilers there but definitely the imagery you bring it's not just like beautiful happy imagery i mean there's there's darkness 
and I say the word darkness on purpose because you and I have spoken about the idea of sacred darkness. Yes. And I'd love to give you a chance to give your framework there. But it connects to that horror genre, right? Which more than any other genre is definitely tied to darkness. Right. And so why is horror important for you and for your work? And I guess part of me is asking this. I'll get like under the surface of my question to the the three other levels beyond shot that you talked about. Like part of why I'm asking is that I I sense that Jewishly and we've talked about this with some past guests, we haven't really done horror. And I know that's a, a weird phrase, like done horror. We, we haven't done Jewish horror to the extent we've done Jewish comedy or other forms of Jewish film or television or fiction. And I'm curious if you have a sense of why that is. But like, talk to us about the way that horror influences your work too. Wonder and horror are two sides of the same coin. They are parallel experiences. Like when people talk about fear of God, it feels like true that both of those things are real, you know, like wonder and horror. It's just like rain and sunshine. The source of horror is the same as the source of wonder and awe. Like it all comes from God. It's not like in say a Christian worldview or more dualistic worldview where it's all the good things come from God and all the bad things come from the devil. Judaism isn't that comforting. The <laughs> things that endanger us and terrify us is, are also the things that comfort us and nourish us. With horror, too, and like this idea of sacred darkness, in Western societies, we have these associations between light and good and pure and safe and dark with evil and impure and dangerous. But I've never really gravitated to the imagery of light as inherently good or safe or pure. First of all, I'm a night owl. Darkness is where I feel comfortable, where I'm at home, where I feel most like myself. Um, the dark soil is the most fertile. And Jewishly speaking, it's okay. In the beginning, there was darkness. Our calendar days start at nightfall. And the way that I experience darkness is not as only this terrifying, dangerous, evil, dirty thing to avoid. It's also a deeply generative, deeply creative state of being. A lot of people look at black as an absence or dark as an absence. And to me, it's it's not like that at all. It reminds me of this um, this series of videos that changed my life called Imagining the Tenth Dimension. The narrator talks about the number zero. And, you, and when I imagine the number zero, I was like, I draw a blank. It's just a black blank. Zero is a powerful number, he says. It's like, um, and it's not an emptiness. It's not a void. Zero contains all possible numbers and their opposites. So zero contains positive infinity and negative infinity. Zero as a number is the number of limitless possibility. And I see darkness the same way. It's not an absence of light. It's the potential for all things. And racially speaking, of course, I'm a black woman. So because I'm a black woman in America, you know, it's interesting that I don't 
associate light or white with evil and danger. Clan robes are white. The people who enslaved my who enslaved my ancestors called themselves white. Not to mention the people who attach their identities to whiteness, who have a deep stake in whiteness, are, shall we say, probably not safe for me to be around. So for me, that dichotomy is, it's not inverted because I don't, because it's not like, well, I'm just going to invert the usual dichotomy. I just, for me, the, the darkness is where I feel the creativity come from. So, closing question that may feel a little like an opening question. I would love to hear just about Project Seamsum, which is sort of the overarching name for a lot of the work that you do. And as you think broadly about, you know, The Red Door as a book and about your forays into horror with horror and holiness and your relationship to RPGs and your approach to Jewish art. There's a lot of pieces happening, and I'd love to just hear them collide a little bit as we close. As a, It doesn't have to synthesize too much. We can leave folks wanting more. But what, what is Project Seamsum, and what are you sort of hoping it can become in the next, I don't know, however long? Seamsum <laughs> is a concept from Kabbalah that refers to the way that God retracted God's self from the universe in order for creation and free will to exist. So before that act of contraction, that act of actively creating a space for creation, everything was completely suffused with God. It was just God. Kind of hard to have a diverse, wondrous variety of creation if everything is this one thing, which is God. So God created the space, withdrew God's self so that, you know, all of this can be here. And with Project Zoom Zoom, I took that kind of as an inspiration for what I do or what I like to do, which is intentionally creating spaces for new things to emerge. These can be like anything from like the Queer Women in Torah workshop, where I create a space where we can do these bold new interpretations of Jewish sacred texts or it can be a role-playing game that with a very deeply Jewish theme. I wanted to do Jews versus aliens, but that, that kind of fell through. Or it could be a virtual space, like with horror and holiness, where I create a space in order to explore things. Project Zoom Zoom is very intentionally about the spatial dimension and how dynamic, creative things happen when you intentionally create space for them. As for what I want, um, I'm not a very ambitious person now that I think about it. It's just, I mean, I'm not trying to take over the world with this, but I would like more people engaging, more people uh, responding and using that as a springboard for their own thing. And just give me credit if you do that. So it's like, oh, I was really inspired by Project Simpson. Please do that. Don't pull an Elvis and act like you created it. But yeah, it's like taking that intentionally creating space and, and then doing something with that space. That, that's the thing. It's like I, I create that space so things can happen. So please make something happen with that. That's what I think I really want. Thank you so much, Sean Harris, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation. 
Thank you. This was really, really cool. And thank you so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. As a reminder, we've got our Elul mini courses, our three-week mini courses in the Anyashiva, our digital platform for Jewish learning and unlearning. Those are launching for registration, so you can sign up. They don't start for a little bit, but you can sign up for them right now, or if you go to our website and you don't see them just yet, they will be there in a couple days and you'll get an email. So stay tuned for our amazing options for Elul short courses. They are a perfect way to enter into the high holiday season. We are now going to close out the episode in the same way we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And I'll add, encouraging you to be in touch with our guest today, who you can reach via Twitter at Project Tzimtzum, T-Z-I-M-T-Z-U-M, or via the website projectzimtzum.com. And uh, for us, you can hit us up via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those. Our handles are at Judaism Unbound. You can head to our website, JudaismUnbound.com, and you can email us at dan at JudaismUnbound.com or lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last request we'd like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way. And you can do that via a monthly recurring donation or just on a one-time basis by heading to JudaismUnbound.com slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been... Judaism Unbound.